Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Chapter 18, The York Legend. The decline and decay of all architectural art and enterprise having lasted for so long a period in Britain, the legend of the craft next proceeds to account for its revival in the 10th century and in the reign of Athelstan. His son Edwin called a meeting, or general assembly, of the Freemasons at York in the year 926, and there revived the institution, giving to the craft a new code of laws. Now it is impossible to attach to this portion of the legend, absolutely and without any reservation, the taint of fiction. The gathering of the craft of England at the city of York in the year 926 has been accepted by both the operative Freemasons who preceded the revival in 1707 and by the speculatives who succeeded them up to the present day as a historical fact that did not admit of dispute. The two classes of legends, the one represented by the Hallowell poem and the other by the later manuscripts, agree in giving the same statement. The Cook manuscript, which holds a middle place between the two, also contains it. But the Hallowell and the Cook manuscripts, which are of older date, give more fully the details of what may be called this revival of English Freemasonry. Thoroughly to understand the subject, it will be necessary to compare the three accounts given in the several sets of manuscripts. The Hallowell or Regius manuscript poem of about the year 1390 contains the account in the following words. We will first give it freed of its old style of language for the convenience of the reader inexpert in early English, and then follow with a quotation from the original. This craft came into England, as I tell you, in the time of good King Athelstane's reign. He made them both hall and also chamber, and lofty churches of great honor, to recreate him in both day and night, and to worship his God with all his strength. This good lord loved this craft full well, and purposed to strengthen it in every part, on account of several defects which he discovered in the craft. He sent about into the land after all the masons of the craft to come straight to him, to amend all these defects by good counsel, if it could be done. Then he permitted an assembly to be made of various lords according to their rank, dukes, earls, and barons, also knights, squires, and many more. And the great burgesses of that city, they were all there in their degree. These were there, each one in every way, to make laws for the society of these masons. There they sought by their wisdom how they might govern it. There they arranged fifteen articles, and there they made fifteen points. The original is as follows. This craft come into England as ye you say, in time of good King Athelstan's day. He made both the hale and ekbor, and high templis of great honor, to sporten him in both day and night, and to worship his God with all his might. This good lord loved this craft full well, and purposed to strengthen height Everdell. For diverse defaults that in the craft he found, he send about into the lond, after all the masons of the craft, to come to him full even straft. For to amend these defaults, I, by good counsel, gef hit might fail. Assemble then he calf let make of diverse lordess in her state. Dukes, earls, and barons also, knights, squires, and money mole. 
and the great burgess of that site they were there all in here dagger these were there upon algate to orden for the mason's estate there they so getten lie here wait how they might govern height fifteen articles they there sown and fifteen points there they wrought i apologize for the uh, trying to read the old english boy that's rough nearly a hundred years afterward we find the legend in the cook manuscript as follows and after that was a worthy king of england that was called athelstone and his youngest son loved well the science of geometry and he was well that handcraft had the practice of geometry so well as masons wherefore he drew him to consul and learned the practice of that science to his speculative for of speculative he was master and he loved well masonry and masons and he become a mason himself and he gave them charges and names as it is now used in england and in other countries and he ordained that they should have reasonable pay and purchased a free patent of the king that they should make assembly when they saw a reasonable time to come together to their council of the which charges manners and symbol as is right and taught in the book of other charges wherefore i leave it at this time old english again just not quite so old another and a later part of the manuscript which appears to have been taken from the aforesaid book of charges with some additional details has the following words after that many years in the time of king athelstane which was some time king of england by his counsel and other great lords of the land by common assent for great default he found among masons they ordained a certain rule amongst them one time of the year or in three year as need were to the king and great lords of the land and all the community from province to province and from country to country congregation should be made by masters of all masters masons and fellows in the foresaid art and so at such congregations that they be made masters should be examined of the articles after written and be ransacked or examined whether they be able and cunning to the profit of the lord's him to serve and to the honor of the foresaid art one hundred years afterward we find this legend repeated in the dowlin manuscript but with some important variations this legend is given in the chapter dealing with the legend of the craft for the convenience of immediate comparison with the other documents it will be well to present it here it is in the following words right soon after the decease of st alban there came diverse wars into the realm of england of diverse natures so that the good rule of masonry was destroyed unto the time of king athelstone's days that was a worthy king of england and brought this land into good rest and peace and builded many great works of abbeys and towers and other many diverse buildings and loved well masons and he had a son that hate edwin and he loved masons much more than his father did and he was a great practiser in geometry and he drew him much to talk and to commune with masons and to learn of them science and afterwards for love that he had to masons and to the science he was made mason and he gat of the king his father a chartour and commission to hold every year once and assemble where that ever they would within the realm of england and to correct within themselves defaults and trespasses that were done within the science and he held himself an assembly at york and there he made masons and gave them charges and taught them the manners and commanded that rule to be kept ever after and took them to chartour and commission to keep and made ordinance that it should be renewed from king to king 
And when the assembly was gathered, he made a cry that all old masons and young that had any writings or understanding of the charges and the manners that were made before in this land or in any other, that they should show them forth. And when it was proved that there was found in some in French and some in Greek and some in English and some in other languages, and the intent of them all was found in all one, and he did make a book thereof, and how the science was founded, and he himself bade and commanded that it should be read or told when that any mason should be made for to give him his charge. And from that day into this time, manners of masons have been kept in that form as well as men might govern it. And furthermore, diverse assemblies have been put and ordained certain charges by the best advice of masters and fellows. It will be remarked that in neither of the two oldest manuscripts, the Hallowell and the Cook, is there any mention of Prince Edwin or of the city of York. We may agree with Brother Woodford that as the fact of the assembly is stated in all the later traditions, and as a city is mentioned whose free men were present, we may fairly understood both of the oldest manuscripts also refer to York. At all events, their silence as to the place is not positive proof that it was not York, as opposed to the strong claim of the latter manuscripts that it was. We see then that all the old legends say straight out and by inference that York was the city where the first general Masonic assembly was held in England, and that it was called together by the authority of King Athelstan. The next point in which all the later manuscripts, except the Harleian, agree is that the assembly was called by Prince Edwin, the king's son. The legend does not here most certainly agree with history, for there is no record that Athelstan had any son. He had, however, a brother of that name. Edward the Elder, the son of Alfred the Great, died in the year 925, leaving several legitimate sons and one natural one, Athelstan. The latter, who was the eldest of the sons of Edward, obtained the throne, notwithstanding the stain on his birth, on account of his age, which better fitted him to govern at a time when the kingdom was engaged in foreign and domestic wars. There is complete agreement among the several historians in giving Athelstan the character of a just and wise ruler, and of a wise man of affairs. It has been said of him that he was the most able and active of the ancient princes of England. What his grandfather, the great Alfred, begun in his efforts to unite the little kingdoms, into which the land was divided into one powerful state, Athelstan, by his energy, his political wisdom, and his military strength, was enabled to perfect, so that he has been justly called the first monarch of all England. While he was king, he was constantly engaged in many wars, but he did not neglect to foster the study of peaceful aims, and he encouraged by a liberal favor the arts and especially architecture. The only stain upon his character is the charge that having suspected his brother Edwin of being engaged in a conspiracy against him, he caused that prince to be drowned. In spite of the efforts of Preston to disprove this charge, the general agreement of the old writers leaves little room to doubt its truth. If anything could atone for this cruel act of state policy, it would be the bitter sorrow and remorse of conscience which led the guilty to endure a severe penance of seven years. The Saxon historians make no mention of Edwin, except when they speak of his untimely death. If we may judge of his character from this silence, we must believe that he was without any brilliant qualities of mind, neither well known by the doing of any important act. Among the half-brothers of Athelstan, the legitimate children of Edward the Elder, Edmund, seems to have been his favorite. He kept him by his side on battlefields, lived single for his sake, and when he died in 941, left to him the succession to the throne. There is another Edwin of leading character in the records of Saxon England, to whom attention has been directed in connection with this legend, as having the best claim to be called the founder or reviver of English masonry. Edwin, 
king of Northumbria, it may be said, was in his narrow sphere the king of a small state, but little inferior in abilities or virtues to Athelstan. At the time of his birth in 590, Northumbria was divided into two kingdoms, that of Bernicia, north of the Humber, and that of Dara, on the south of the same river. Of the former, Ethelfrith was king, and of the latter, Ella, the father of Edwin. Ella died in 593 and was succeeded by Edwin, an infant of three years of age. Soon after, Ethelfrith invaded the possessions of Edwin and attached them by force to his own state. Edwin was sent to Wales, whence when he grew older he was obliged to flee, and he passed many years in exile, principally at the court of Redwald, king of East Anglia. By the assistance of this monarch, he was enabled to make war upon his old enemy, Ethelfrith, who, having been slain in battle, and his sons having fled into Scotland, Edwin not only regained his own throne, but that of his enemy also, and in the year 617 became the king of Northumbria, of which the city of York was made the capital. Edwin was originally a pagan, but his mind was studious, and that made him, says Turner, more intellectual than any of the Saxon kings who had preceded him. He was thus led to a logical examination of the Christian faith, which he finally accepted, and was publicly baptized at York on Easter Day in the year 627. The ceremony was publicly performed in the Church of St. Peter the Apostle, a building which he had caused to be hastily constructed of wood for the purposes of divine service, during the time that he was receiving the religious instruction before he was baptized. As soon as he was baptized, he built, says Bede, under the direction of Paulinus, his religious instructor and bishop, in the same place, a much larger and nobler church of stone. During the time of Edwin and of his successors in the same century, religious architecture greatly flourished, and many large churches were built. Edwin was slain in battle in 633, having reigned for 17 years. The Venerable Bede gives us the best testimony we could desire as to the character of Edwin as ruler when he tells us that all of the state there was such perfect peace that a woman with a newborn babe might walk from sea to sea without receiving any harm. Another incident that he tells is significant of Edwin's care and forethought for the comfort of his people. Where there were springs of water near the highways, he caused posts to be fixed with drinking vessels attached to them for the convenience of travelers. By such acts and others of a higher character, by his help of the arts and his strict attention to justice, he secured the love of his subjects. So much of history was necessary that the reader might understand the argument in reference to the true meaning of the York legend, which we discuss in its proper place. Anderson and Preston credit the honor of organizing masonry and calling a general assembly to Edwin his brother. Their versions are merely enlarged copies of the original legend. But in the Roberts Constitutions, printed in 1722, and which were claimed to have been copied from a manuscript about 500 years old, but without any proof, as the original has never been recovered, the name of Edwin is left out, and Athelstan himself is said to have been the reviver of the institution. The language of this manuscript, as published by J. Roberts, is as follows. He, Athelstan, began to build many abbeys, monasteries, and other religious houses, as also castles and diverse fortresses for the defense of his realm. He loved masons more than his father, he greatly studied geometry, and sent into many lands for men expert in the science. He gave them a very large charter to hold a yearly assembly, and power to correct offenders in the said science. And the king himself caused a general assembly of all masons in his realm, at York, and there were made many, many masons, and gave them a deep charge for observation of all such articles as belonged into masonry, and delivered them the said charter to keep. The Harleian and Robert's manuscripts agree with the Regius in leaving out all references to Prince Edwin. 
A passage in the Harleian and Roberts manuscripts is worthy of notice. The recent manuscripts which speak of Edwin as obtaining the charter say that he loved Masons much more than his father did, meaning Athelstan. But the Harleian and Roberts manuscripts, speaking of King Athelstan, use the same language but with a different reference, and say of King Athelstan that he loved Masons more than his father, meaning King Edward, whose son Athelstan was. Of the two statements, that of the Harleian and Roberts manuscripts is much more agreeable to history than the other. Athelstan was a lover of Freemasons, for he was a great patron of architecture, and many public buildings were erected during his reign. But it is not recorded in history that Prince Edwin exhibited any such love for Freemasonry or architecture as is credited to him in the old records, certainly not a regard equal to that of Athelstan. On the contrary, Edward, the son of Alfred and the father of Athelstan, was not noted during his reign for any marked favor of the arts, and especially of architecture. And it is, therefore, certain that his son Athelstan exhibited a greater love to masons or architecture than he. There arises a suspicion that the legend was originally framed in the form presented to us by the Hallowell or Regius poem. Then it was copied apparently by the writers of the Harleian and Roberts manuscripts, and that the insertion of the name of Prince Edwin was an afterthought of the copiers of the more recent manuscripts. This insertion of Edwin's name and the error of making him a son of Athelstan probably arose from a confusion of the mythical Edwin with a different person, the earlier Edwin who was king of Northumbria. We may note that the son of Athelstan is not called Edwin in all of the recent manuscripts. In one Sloan manuscript he is called Laudrian, in another Hegma, and in the Lodge of Hope manuscript Hoderine. This fact might mean that there was some confusion and perhaps a disagreement in putting the name of Prince Edwin into the legend. The other supposition is more probable from our own point of view, and this is the belief that these mixed-up references are merely the result of a careless copying of the manuscripts. We have then to account for this use of an apparently mythical personages into the story, by which the reliability of the legend is seriously affected. Anderson, and after him Preston, attempts to get out of the difficulty by calling Edwin the brother and not the son of Athelstan. Athelstan did have a younger brother named Edwin, whom some historians have charged him with putting to death. Just so far, the legend might not be considered as out of time with history. But as nearly all the manuscripts which speak of Edwin call him the king's son and not his brother, notwithstanding the contrary statement of Anderson, we suggest another explanation. English history records a royal Edwin whose love for the arts and sciences, whose wise state policies, and whose favor of architecture must have gained him the respect and the affection of the early English Freemasons. Edwin, king of Northumbria, one of the seven kingdoms into which England was divided during the Anglo-Saxon period from the 5th to the 9th centuries, died in 633, after a reign of 16 years, which was noted for the reforms which he made, for the wise laws which he worked out and enforced, for the bringing of Christianity into his kingdom, and for the improvement which he effected in the moral, social, and mental condition of his subjects. When he ascended the throne, the northern headquarters of the Anglican Church had been placed at York, where it still remains. The king favored Paulinus, the bishop, and gave him with a house other property in that city. To this Edwin, and not to the brother of Athelstan, some modern Masonic students have supposed that the legend of the craft refers. This opinion is not altogether a new one. Long ago, it seems to have been a firm belief among the Freemasons of northern part of England. For in 1726, in an address delivered before the Grand Lodge of York by its junior Grand Warden, Francis Drake, he speaks of it as being well known and accepted in the following words. 
You know we can boast that the first Grand Lodge ever held in England was held in this city, York, where Edwin, the first Christian king of the Northumbers, about the 600th year after Christ, who laid foundation of our cathedral, sat as Grand Master. Brother A.F.A. Woodford, a Masonic student of high standing and having a special knowledge of Freemasonry in Northern England, accepts this claim and finds support in the facts that the town of Derventio, now Albi, six miles from York, the supposed location of the Edwin of Legend, was also the chief residence of Edwin, King of Northumbria, and that the buildings, said in one manuscript to have been erected by the legendary Edwin, were really built, as is known from history, by the Northumbrian Edwin. With these proofs, the inquirer will have little or no hesitation in accepting this version of the legend, and will admit that the writers of the later manuscripts fell into an error in taking Edwin, the son, as they called him, but really the brother, of Athelstan, for Edwin, the king of Northumbria. We must admit that the difference of dates presents a difficulty, there being about 300 years between the reigns of Edwin of Northumbria and Athelstan of England. But that difficulty may be met by the following explanation. The earlier series of manuscripts, of which the Hallowell poem is an example, make no mention of Edwin, but assign the revival of masonry in the 10th century to King Athelstan. More recent manuscripts, of which the Dowland is the earliest, bring Prince Edward into the legend and give him the honor of having obtained a charter from Athelstan and of having held an assembly at York. We thus find two forms of the legend for the sake of distinction. These may be styled the older and the later. The older legend makes Athelstan the reviver of masonry in England and says nothing at all of Edwin. The later takes this honor from Athelstan and gives it to Prince Edwin, who is called his son. This reference to Edwin is, then, an addition to the older legend and was put into it by the later legendists, as will be plainly seen if the following extract from the Dowland manuscript be read and all the words there printed in italics be left out. So read, the record will agree quite closely with the one referring to the same events in the Roberts manuscript, which was undoubtedly a copy from some older manuscript containing the legend in its earliest form, wherein there is no mention of Prince Edwin. Here is the extract to be read, but by leaving out the words in italics. The good rule of masonry was destroyed under the time of King Athelstan days that was a worthy king of England, and brought this land into good rest and peace, and builded many great works of abbeys and towers, and other many diverse buildings, and loved well masons. And he loved masons much more than his father did, and he was a great practiser in geometry, and he drew him much to talk and to commune with masons, and to learn of them science, and afterward for love that he had to masons and to the science he was made a mason, and he got a charter and commission to hold every year once an assembly, where that ever they would within the realm of England, and to correct within themselves defaults and trespasses that were done within the science. And he held himself an assembly at York, and there he made masons and gave them charges, and taught them manners, and commanded that rule to be kept ever after, and took then the charter and commission to keep, and made ordinance that it should be renewed from king to king. If only these thirteen words in italics are left out, we are at once free of all difficulty, and we bring the legend into exact agreement with the tradition of the older manuscripts. Thus changed, we see that it means, one, that King Athelstan was a great patron of the arts of civilization. He brought the land into rest and peace. This statement is proved by the facts of history. Two, he paid a special attention to architecture and the art of building and adorned his country with abbeys, towns, and many other edifices. History confirms this also. 
He was more interested in and gave a greater help to architecture than his father and predecessor Edward, another historical fact. Four, he gave to the masons or architects a charter to form them into a guild, a legalized body of operative tradesmen, and called an assembly of the crafty York. This last item is altogether traditional. Historians are silent on the subject, just as they are on forming of a Grand Lodge in 1717. The mere silence of historians as to the formation of a guild of craftsmen or a private society is no proof that such a guild or society was not formed. The truth of the statement that King Athelstan caused an assembly of masons to be held in the year 926 at the city of York depends solely on a tradition which nevertheless has long been accepted by the whole Masonic world as a fact. That York was the place where an assembly was called by Athelstan in the year 926 is less probable when we refer to the order and relation of historical events. Let us look briefly at the known facts. In 925, Athelstan became king. At that time, Sigtrig was king of Northumbria, which formed no part of Athelstan's kingdom. To Sigtrig, who had just been converted into Christianity, Athelstan gave his sister in marriage. But the Northumbrian king proved false to the faith, and his brother-in-law went to war with him. Sigtrig having died in the meantime, his sons fled, one into Ireland and the other into Scotland, and Athelstan took Northumbria for his own. This occurred in the year 926. While pursuing the sons of Sigtrig, one of whom had taken refuge in the city of York, whose citizens he vainly sought to enlist in his favor, is it likely that Athelstan would have selected a period of war and a city within the country just taken from an enemy instead of his own capital for the time and place of holding an assembly of masons? However unlikely that may be, it is not impossible. If we admit the tradition may be correct as to York, then the time should be advanced by a few years to that happy period when Athelstan had restored the land into good rest and peace. The important question is whether this tradition is mythical or historical, fiction or truth. Fair criticism applied to the probabilities will aid us in solving this problem. There is nothing in the personal character of Athelstan, nothing in the history of his time, nothing in the well-known manner of his royal authority and government that forbids the probability that what is credited to him in the legend of the craft actually took place. Taking his grandfather, the great Alfred, as his pattern, he was liberal in all his ideas, patronized learning, erected many churches, monasteries, and other edifices of importance, encouraged the translation of the Bible into Anglo-Saxon, and what is of great value to the present question, gave charters to many guilds or operative companies as well as to several cities. We know from historical records that in the time of Athelstan, the Frith Gildan, free guilds or brotherhoods, were incorporated by law. From these arose the craft guilds, or associations, having fraternal relations and giving mutual aid, resulting in the present-day trade companies of England. There would be nothing improbable in the claim that he extended his protection to the operative Freemasons, whose art we know that he used in the many public and religious buildings which he was engaged in erecting. It is even more than likely to suppose that the Masons were among the societies to which he granted charters or acts of incorporation. With the Reverend Brother Woodford, whose opinion as a Masonic student is of great value, we are disposed to accept a tradition of respected age and for so long a period believed in by the craft as a historical record insofar as the obtaining of a charter from Athelstan and the holding of an assembly. I see no reason, therefore, he says, to reject so old a tradition that under Athelstan the operative Freemasons obtained his patronage and met in general assembly. 
If we admit the fact of Athelstan's favor and of the assembly meeting at some place, we next have the difficulty of explaining the use of the story about Prince Edwin. There can be no doubt that the framers of the later legend had confused the brother, whom they in error had called the son of Athelstan, with a preceding king of the same name, that is, with Edwin, king of Northumbria, who in the 7th century did what another Edwin may have done in the 10th. That is to say, he favored the Freemasons of his time, brought the art of building into his kingdom, and probably held an assembly at York, his capital city. We may suppose that the earlier Masons of the south of England, who gave us the first legend of the craft, such as is presented to us in the old poem, first published by Hallowell in 1840, and also in the Harleian manuscript, and in the one printed by Roberts in 1722, were unacquainted with the legend of Edwin of Northumbria. Although, if we may believe Brother Drake, it was a well-known tradition in the north of England. The earlier legends of the South, therefore, gave to Athelstan alone the honor of favoring the Freemasons and holding an assembly at York in 926. This was, therefore, the primitive legend of the craft among the Freemasons of London and the southern part of the kingdom. In time, the southern Freemasons, because of being better acquainted, became aware of the tradition that King Edwin of Northumbria had also favored the Freemasons of his kingdom, but at an earlier period. The two traditions were, of course, at first kept distinct. There was perhaps a dislike among the Freemasons of the South to lessen the claims of Athelstan as the first reviver, after St. Alban, a Freemasonry in England, and to give the honor to a king who lived 300 years before in the north of the island. This backwardness added to the confusion to which all mouth-to-ear tradition is subject, coupled with the fact that there was an Edwin who was a near relative of Athelstan, resulted in the use of this later Edwin for the true one. Years were required to do this, their backwardness persisting, the confusion of the traditions increasing, until at last the southern Freemasons, altogether losing sight of the Northumbrian tradition as distinct from that of Athelstan, mixed up the two traditions into one, and with the neglect or want of information about history that was so common in that age, and especially among uncultured craftsmen, they put Edwin, the brother of Athelstan, for Edwin, the king of Northumbria, and thus formed a new legend of the craft, such as was repeated by Anderson, and after him by Preston, and which has lasted to the present day. If we correct the story of Edwin, as it is told in the later legend, and accept it as referring to Edwin of Northumbria, and as actually told in the tradition peculiar to the Freemasons of the northern part of England, we find that in the first place there were two traditions, one existing in the northern part of England and the other in the southern part. The former legend credited the revival of Freemasonry in England to Edwin, king of Northumbria in the 7th century, and the latter to Athelstan, king of England in the 10th. There being little communication in those days between the two parts of the kingdom, the tradition remained distinct. But at some later period, not earlier than the middle of the 16th century or the era of the Reformation, the Southern Freemasons became acquainted with the true legend of the York Freemasons and put that story into their own legend, mixing up the two Edwins, either from want of knowledge or more probably from a dislike to give up the place they had of old given to Athelstan as the first head of Freemasonry in England. Therefore, we come to the belief that the following are at least probable, that if there was an assembly at York, it was called by Edwin, King of Northumbria, who revived masonry in the northern part of England in the 7th century, and that its former proud position was restored by Athelstan in the 10th century, not by the holding of assembly at the city of the York, but by his general favor of the arts, and especially of architecture, and by the charters of incorporation which he freely granted to various guilds or societies of workmen. We are in the light of that belief now prepared to review and to digest the legend of the craft, 
not in the light of a series of absurd fictions, as too many have been inclined to see it, but as history, told in quaint language, not always grammatical, and containing several errors in the order of events, misspelling of names, and confusion of persons, such mistakes as might be expected, and indeed were common in manuscripts written in that uncultured age, and by the uneducated craftsmen to whom we owe these old writings. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.